you have your Bibles, take them the Gospel of John. I want to begin our time by reading for us verses 12 through 19. Of course, we, in walking through this study with the Lord Jesus Christ and His life, we have come to the place where the final week of His life is just beginning here in the, at least the narrative that John gives us. In verse 12 through 19, very pivotal section in the transition of how the people begin to treat Christ at large. Beginning in verse 12, it says, On the next day the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a, colt's don- on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Last Sunday evening when we studied the 11 verses just prior to this, we were looking intently at the heart of true worshipers. What is going on in worshipers of Jesus Christ or true worshipers of Jesus Christ? And many of you were taking notes, and I'm sure you remember what was said concerning the heart of those who are true worshipers of Jesus Christ. True worshipers are not those who seek after self. They are not those who look for the fulfillment of life and the desires of the flesh, but they are those who exhibit an attitude of selflessness. We saw that in the three players, really, of Jesus coming to where he was having the dinner at Simon's house in Bethany. Martha was selfless in her service to the Lord Jesus Christ, whereas she was self-serving before. Now she is simply serving the Lord out of her own sacrifice. Lazarus was selfless in his desire to fellowship with Jesus Christ and with those who were in fact with him. And Mary, of course, was selfless in her complete sacrifice of whatever it was from her life, even the very costly things to sacrifice for the Lord. None of that happened, of course, in their lives by chance. None of that happened by some sort of origination within them. They didn't conjure those things up. All of that was a reflection in their own lives of their encounter with Jesus Christ prior to that moment on that time when he, in fact, raised their brother from the dead. The realization of who Jesus Christ really is, the resurrection and the life. And last Sunday I made a comment that it concerns me as a pastor, it concerns me as a Christian, frankly, even when I 
cursory look through my own life that far too often and far too many, I think, professing believers in Christendom are living lives that do not reflect a relationship with Jesus Christ. Certainly they claim Christ, they claim to know Jesus, but their lives don't reflect that. It's an ugly fact, really, of even our own very lives that far too often, if we're really honest with ourselves, that we are mere hearers of the Word much more than we are doers of the Word. Um, I don't believe there would be anybody here in this room that would disagree with that statement as you survey your life, as you survey your own Christianity, as you think about how you live before God, you would certainly say, well, I hear the Word of God, but am I doing the Word of God? Uh, Boy, I tell you, I certainly would have to say I'm much more of a hearer than I am a doer far too often. We boast great things about ourselves in our own Christian lives, but far too often in reality, that's all it really is, just boasting, empty words, things we say about ourselves, but things that are not really necessarily true to what we are saying. And this is uh, what concerns me within evangelicalism today. Concerns me for many reasons, but I I just want to give you two reasons tonight, uh, just by way of introduction as we look at this passage and deal with true worshipers or the character of true worshipers one more time tonight. But there's a lot of reasons, but I'll just give you two. One reason it concerns me in evangelicalism is because I wonder how many professing believers are living a deceived life. They profess to know God, but they're really deceived. They're going through the motions, if you will, of outward Christianity. The the motions of what you might attach to being a Christian as it's defined today. And yet they truly don't know Christ inwardly. I wonder how many people in our day are truly deceived and are in that group of Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, who have attached themselves to Christ, saying, we did this in your name, we did this in your name, we did this because of you. And Jesus says to them, but I never knew you. In the end, they don't enter into the kingdom of heaven because... Jesus never had a relationship with them. That's the tragic end it will be for many people. I think churches across the globe, but primarily here in the West, are filled with people who are on the wide road and not the narrow road. Jesus said, few there are that find it. So that's one of the reasons it concerns me. I think churches have... Many people who are deceived, who who would claim Jesus, but really don't, their lives show no real reality of that in them. But there's another reason, and it's this. It's, It's really concerning those who truly do know Christ. Why is there, why does it seem to be for the true Christian? Why does it seem to be, that in life there's such this ebb and flow of the Christian life. There's, there seems to be no real consistency to, to living out what we believe. In other words, why is it so difficult for professing Christians to be consistently obedient? I mean, you think about your own life. You look at your own struggles. You, see, you ask yourself the question, why is it so hard for me at times? Now, I know that we can throw out the simple answer. We can throw out the 
as my wife and I call it, the Sunday school answer or the children's Sunday school answer. Well, it's because we're not yet perfect and we still sin. That's true in an overarching way. That's part of it, right? Even true Christian sin. You and I are acutely aware of our own sin. But I don't think that takes us back far enough to the ultimate cause. Because that is just another rationalization, if you will, for why I don't need to work at not sinning. Right? It's almost a mentality, if I think like that, well, I know I can't win, so why try to win? That's kind of the idea. And and we shouldn't think like that. What I'm talking about is the cause for that kind of thinking. What causes that kind of thinking in the professing Christians? I mean, if I truly know Christ, then according to the Word of God, I have all I need for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. I've been given everything I need for life and for the reflection of the very character of God that I'm supposed to be living. Therefore, I must be able to do it, so why don't I? That's really the question I'm asking. In the book of James, I think we are reminded of some very important truths concerning the character of true believers. And I want us to go there for a moment before we get back to John chapter 12. So go to the book of James just for a moment. Because in the entire book of James, throughout the entire book, James is laying out for the reader a practical test, a test that you can give yourself, a test that you can look at your life for those who profess to know Jesus Christ. And and from that test, take an inventory as to what genuine faith really looks like. So he gives 13 practical test questions throughout the entire book. And... It's something you can take. It's something you can ask yourself, how am I doing in this area of my Christianity? How am I doing in these areas? How does my life stack up to what God describes as Christian living? That's really the idea. And the first question is this. How do I respond to trials in life? How do I respond to trials in life? In other words, what happens to me in my inner life? What happens inside when trials and temptations come? What do I do with those? That's really the idea. And then James goes on to say that your response to them is a direct reflection of of your understanding of the purpose of trials and your understanding of where we can truly get strength to continue victoriously through trials. It's very clear, really, if you just look at verses 2 through 18 in chapter 1. This is the first test. How do I respond to trials? Well, here's the way we're to respond. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's the reality. Trials come. Here's how I'm to respond to those trials. The multifaceted, 
multi-depth, whether it's a big trial, a small trial, an easy trial, a hard trial, uh, whatever it is, an emotional trial, whatever the circumstance, I'm to consider it joy, not because I really enjoy trials, but because of what it produces. It produces in me an endurance, a strengthening of my faith, which causes me to be mature and complete in Christ so that I lack nothing that God is producing in me in my life. Well, that's going to take wisdom. Well, if you lack wisdom, you go to God, right? Let him ask God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But you can't ask in order to use it upon yourself as if it's some kind of thing that you want to use just for you. You have to ask with faith, not doubt, for one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, tossed and driven by the wind. Don't expect that you'll receive anything from the Lord like that because you're double-minded, unstable. Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. It's, it's not how much you know or how little you know. You, you, you just thank God for where he's got you, for what you're in, because God is working through it all. So blessed, verse 12, is the man who perseveres under trial. Once you've been approved, you will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When those things come and when when temptation comes within them and you're tempted to grumble and complain against God about what's going on in your life and the circumstances of life, don't blame that on God. All that is because your heart and your perspective is in the wrong place. And so James gives that test. He says, here's the test question. How do you respond to trials? And you can look at your life and you can inventory your life and say, boy, i got some work to do there. i got some work to do. The second test is this. How do you respond to the Word of God? How do you respond to the Word of God? What do you do with the Word of God? And beginning in verse 19 and going all the way through the end of chapter 1, you get this second test question. This you know, my beloved brethren. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, and he goes and gives that list of things we're to put aside, things with the tongue, the issues that we say. And receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I'm going through a difficulty, when I'm in a struggle, the last thing that my my fleshly heart wants to hear is the words of God, which directly cut it to the quick and show it exactly what it is. You fight against that. But we're to receive the word implanted because it's able to save our very soul. So prove yourself to be a doer of the word, not merely somebody who hears and deludes themselves. And, of course, he gives that illustration of how that looks. You look in the word of God, and when you go away, you forget it, and you just go back to doing your same old thing. So you have to ask yourself, does the stain of the world the thinking of the world, the philosophy of the world, infect us in that way. James says, keep yourself unpolluted, really, from the world. That's what he's saying. That doesn't mean from being in the world. We can't can't do that. 
we're in the world. We know we cannot leave this place until God calls us home, but we can be unstained from the world where? In our minds, in our thinking. And this is where the greatest problem lies, I think, in our Christianity. Far too often we buy into the thinking and the philosophy of the world. How the world defines it, how the world sees it. And we become polluted by the world in our minds. And that gets reflected then in how we live, how we carry out our life. And it's so subtle we don't even realize it. You say, well, why do you say that? Well, here's why I say that. And this this takes us back really to, to our study in John, right? Here in the West, we live in a culture that is dominated by a philosophy that having a king is a bad thing. Especially here in America. None of us have ever lived in a country, if you grew up here in the West, grew up here in America, none of us have ever lived in a country where the primary rule came from a sole monarch, a king that called the shots. Right? Our country was founded on the rule of the people. People gathered, they got leaders that they wanted. The oppression of the king of England, the demand of the state-run religion was part of the driving force that drove our forefathers out and the founding of this country. They wanted to throw off the rule of the monarch, the rule of the, the single king over them. And in many ways, that was a good thing but in many ways it was also a not-so-good thing because it has bred and developed in the hearts of many a desire for no king, no king at all. Anytime someone comes along and declares rulership in any kind of level, there's a fight against it. And you see that even more and more and more in our day, even the lowest of levels don't have any authority over me. That's the idea of our day and age. Any authority that's proclaimed, any authority that's established, I'm not coming under that. That's the mentality of our day. Unless it's a benefit for me, unless it's something that's going to benefit my life, any new rulership that comes, I don't want it unless it's going to take more oppression away from me. Unless it's going to give me ease. This is, isn't, though... However, only a problem in the West. It's a worldwide problem because even though we have thrown off the rule of kingship, even those countries who still have that kind of idea, they too begin to silently look for a new king any time the current one is no longer allowing them to do what they want to do. In the West, we have no real concept of kingship over us but in other places, kingship has been reduced really in many ways to someone who gives us what we want rather than what we need. Give us what we want, not what we need. We'll tell you what to give us, and you need to give it to us. And of course, the abuse of those who hold that kind of monarchy has been well established in the historical record. There have been dictators all over the place who abuse that. And oftentimes, we would not blame people for wanting to be out from under that kind of idea. But when it comes to our Christianity, 
This is where the philosophy of the world gets mixed in. Because when it comes to our Christianity, we must understand that we do have a king. We have a monarch. We have a ruler. He is not a king that is here to give us what we want. He is rather a king that always gives us what we need most. And for all of mankind, what mankind needs most is to live according to the design of their maker. And they only can do that through salvation, which comes only through him. And so true worshipers understand who their king is. You see, we live in a country where there is no king, and we don't really want a king, and so we drag that philosophy into the church, and we drag that philosophy into our Christian life, and oftentimes we live as if we don't have a king. And the reality I'm trying to say tonight is this. We have a king, and true worshipers understand who their king is. So take all of that in your mind and go back to John chapter 12. I know that's a long introduction for us tonight, but I I think it needed to be said in light of our understanding of who Christ is and how He is reflected in our lives or how He ought to be reflected in our lives. When we look at this passage, there are two groups identified, two groups that come out or or that we see operating here. Two different crowds of people. One group understands who Jesus is. The other does not. Both have this attachment to Jesus, but only one truly knows who He is. Both outwardly, at least, on the, uh, by their actions, appear as if they're worshiping but only one truly is. And all of this is taking place because Jesus is entering Jerusalem as king. And that's the whole point of these verses. Jesus entering Jerusalem as king. And you can see the focus of that in verses 14 to 16. Jesus finding a donkey sat in it as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. That's that's the whole point of this passage. That this very instance, this very moment in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of what God had promised long ago. Jesus is entering Jerusalem as king so that the word of God might be fulfilled. That's the whole point. You say, well, what part is being fulfilled? What part of prophecy is being fulfilled? And for that answer... We need to be reminded of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. You don't have to turn there. Uh, We're not going to look at all the details of that. We don't have time to look at all the details of that. We've looked at it in the past, especially in our study of Revelation. But I'll just remind you of a few things. Because for our purposes tonight, we we just have to take a moment or we'll never get through what I want to get through. 
Remember, there in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's having a vision. He's having a dream, a vision, a prophecy is given to him while Israel is in captivity in Babylon. Israel had been being judged by God. He had had them taken captive to the Babylonians, and Daniel is there with them, and Daniel is having a prophecy given to him by God. And God says to Daniel that a length of time was going to go from from that time yeah, that they're in exile until the day when Israel's sin would be finished and everlasting righteousness would be brought in. That's the whole idea of the prophecy. And he gives what that's going to look like. And we have the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel, a span of time of 70 weeks. And when you study that out, you understand that the weeks are not weeks as we count weeks, seven days in a week, but, but one week is actually seven years of time. So you have 70 portions of seven years of time. So you have a, a maximum time of 490 years. And within that, within that time, seven sevens or 49 years are, are going to go by in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And you can read about that rebuilding when, when there's a de- decree made by the king of Babylon that, that that they can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And you can read that about that in Ezra and Nehemiah and how long it took to rebuild the temple. Exactly what the prophecy said. After Jerusalem is restored, after it's rebuilt, there is a length of time of 62 sevens. 62 periods of seven years that was to elapse until... The Messiah, the prince, comes and then is cut off from the people. So 7 plus 62 is 69 weeks. So 69 total weeks from the time that the prophecy was given, the people go back to begin to rebuild the temple all the way to the time until Jesus is cut off or until the Messiah is cut off from his people. So a total of 69 weeks needed to pass from the rebuilding of the temple until the Messiah comes into Jerusalem and is cut off. So, 69 times 7 is 483 years. After the decree to rebuild the temple, Christ the Prince comes and then is cut off. And if you do the history from the time they rebuilt the temple and you go 483 years in a historical calendar, you find yourself in the Jewish month in which Jesus enters Jerusalem. This is that moment. This is the key prophecy which is being fulfilled in John chapter 12. The entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem in such a grand fashion is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel's 69th week when the Messiah formally and officially is presented to Israel as the king. So 483 years from the start of the, or from the decree of Israel rebuilding the temple after captivity. 
Years ago, Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book entitled The Coming Prince. And in it, he said this, quote, No student of the gospel narrative can fail to see that the Lord's last visit to Jerusalem was not only in fact, but in the purpose of it, the crisis of his ministry, the goal toward which it had been directed. After the first tokens had been given that the nation would reject his messianic claims, he had shunned all public recognition of them. But now the twofold testimony of his words and his works had been fully tendered. His entrance into the holy city was to proclaim his messiahship and to receive his doom. Again and again his apostles even had been charged that they should not make him known. But now he accepted the acclamations of the whole multitude of disciples and silenced the remonstrance of the Pharisees with indignation. The time of Jerusalem's visit had come, and she knew it not. Long ere this, the nation had rejected him, but this was the predestined day when their choice must be irrevocable. Right. Daniel 9 is being fulfilled partially here. Remember, there's, there's a 70th week still in Daniel. We studied that 70th week and what occurs in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy in the book of Revelation. It is the tribulation period. And the time between that is the time that we are in, the church age. So Daniel 9 is being fulfilled partially here, and that's why they're saying in verse 13, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. But also, Zechariah chapter 9 is being fulfilled. Daniel speaks of the when this is going to happen, the 69th week, and Zechariah tells how it's to happen. And that's what you see there in verse 15, the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So verse 15 is, is the, the, when, the how it's going to happen. This is the, the wind that Jesus is coming in Daniel chapter 9, that, that he's coming as king in verse 13, and Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 and verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. And so the king has come, and the response to the king is twofold, much like we see today. There are those who hail Jesus as the coming one who would set them free from their current oppression. Whatever it was that is oppressing their life, they attach themselves to Jesus and there are those who are hailing him because he is God who came to set them free from the very thing that holds them in bondage, sin itself, so that they might glorify him as he has designed this is the difference between true worshipers and those who are not true worshipers. This is the difference between those who attach themselves to Jesus Christ for what He can do for them and those who are attached to Christ because of what He has done to them. 
So this is the difference between those who want a king to set them free from the troubles of life with those who serve their king within the circumstances of life because they know that he's the only one who can give them spiritual life. The first group is here in verses 12 and 13. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. These are the same people that in just a few short days will say, crucify him. Crucify him. They had come to the feast as part of their religious duty. This is what was required of them. In order to participate in the celebration of Passover, a Jew had to be ceremonially clean. He had to follow the rules of of cleansing according to ceremonial law. And so they came early. They got to Jerusalem early in order that they could go through the ceremonial cleansing process prior to the Passover. According to some historical estimates, as you read in Josephus and others, the crowd probably could have been close to 2.7 million people in Jerusalem that week. Now, I had the opportunity to be in Jerusalem several years ago and, and the, the, what is now the old city of Jerusalem, which was built, the wall was built in the 1500s. Uh, it doesn't even go back to the first century, and I could not imagine 2.7 million people in that small space. And Jerusalem was smaller than that. And when the crowd hears that Jesus is coming into the city, they run out, they snap off the branches of the palm trees, and they begin to lay them down on the ground and cry out, Hosanna. This is an amazing pronouncement. Because in the Hebrew, the word literally means save us. Save us. Or, or give salvation to us now. Really, that's the idea. They're quoting from the book of Psalms. They're quoting a messianic psalm, Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm, one that was normally sung by the people uh, in the morning during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the time prior to the Passover. Each Jew would have understood uh, that psalm to be an announcement of the king. They would have known that. But their pronouncement isn't for Christ to save them from their sin. They're saying, Hosanna, save now. Uh, Come and, and give salvation now. They're not saying, save us from our sin. Rather, what they're saying is, save us from this situation. Save us from the Roman government that's over us, the oppression we're in. They're waiting for the day when the Messiah would come and save them from whatever tyrannical government was over them. Too many who were there, for them the day of that deliverance had come. Jesus was going to do it, according to them. It's the very same reason that many flock to God today. Sadly, this is the very gospel that is presented today oftentimes, right? Come to Christ, He'll fix your problems. Come to Jesus. He's going to make your life better. Come to Jesus. The difficulties are going to end. 
Just make a decision for Christ. Everything will be okay. People flock to that kind of gospel. They read it in books. They hear it in churches all the time. Even though it's another false gospel, it's not the one in Scripture. It's not how Scriptures teach about Christ. Christ never said, come unto me, all you are having trouble in life, and I'll fix it for you. He never said that. Come unto me, all you are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He said that. What is it we're heavy laden with? It's not troubles of life. God doesn't want to fix your circumstances. He wants you to have joy in in and through those circumstances because you know what it's producing. But He doesn't want to fix your circumstances because the troubles in life are caused most often by sin. Trouble. We are born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, Job said. What we need rest from is not trouble in life. What we need rest from is trying to work our way into the kingdom of God. That will never happen through us, only through faith in Jesus Christ, as we learned this morning. So Christ doesn't desire to fix the problems of our lives. He desires to transform us. How? By making us new so that we can respond to those things in a God-glorifying way. So the first group in verses 12 and 13, are, they're just simply attached to Jesus. They're, they're simply attached to him because they believe that he's going to rescue them from the trouble of life. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Oh, let's get out there. Let's hail him as the king. And remember, they tried to do that in John chapter 6 already, and Jesus went by himself alone because they wanted to come and take him as their king. But the second group is attached to Christ, not because of what he had done for them, but because of who he is. Notice verse 17. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, not the same people, not the same multitude, This is those who were there that day. This was those who were hanging around him who had come with him even when he had traveled to there. This is those who had been following him around. Those who were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. What are they doing? They're bearing him witness. Jesus has done something in their midst. They have heard him teach. They have been watching his life. Just as a change was seen in the lives of Martha and Lazarus and Mary because of their encounter with Christ. I believe so too. That's exactly what happened with these people. I don't say that flippantly. I say that simply because the text says they're bearing Him witness. They're bearing Him witness. That means that they're going around and spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. They're like testifiers in a courtroom. In fact, they were part of the reason that so many came out to see Jesus when He entered Jerusalem. The people who had heard Jesus was coming and somehow had interacted with some of these people who were coming to Jerusalem as well for the feast and they were testifying about Jesus. 
You say, well, doesn't that mean they were just simply telling other people, hey, Jesus is coming, hey, Jesus is coming. No, that wouldn't make sense because they were testifying about Jesus in spite of the fact that in chapter 11, verse 57, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should be reported that they might seize him. Right? You want to testify about Jesus is going to get you in trouble. And here are people actually bearing witness about Jesus. In spite of the threats, they're giving testimony of Christ. I believe these were true believers. And also, I also believe that this is what happens in a life when we come to understand that Jesus is in fact the King. This is exactly what happens. When we understand who we are in light of who He is, the only response that we have, as Paul says in Romans 12, our reasonable service of worship is to go and tell others who He is. True worshipers, guess what? They evangelize. They evangelize in word. They evangelize with their lives. They just bear witness of Him because they know their King. They desire others to know their King, no matter what the threat is. It doesn't matter that others might think they're a freak. Other people might think you're weird. It doesn't matter. You just want to go tell people. You can see in verse 18, for this cause also the multitude went and met him. What cause? The bearing witness about Jesus. That's why they were running out there, because they heard that he had performed this sign. They're not only telling about Jesus, but they're telling what he did. This is the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the guy that that changed that person's life. This is that Jesus. It's like John chapter 9 and the man who was born blind that Jesus gives him eyesight. And and he says, listen, I don't know all the details. I don't know all the theological ramifications that took place. All I know is I was blind, now I see, and Jesus is the one that did it. This is what these people are doing. It doesn't matter that others might ostracize them. It doesn't matter that. They can't answer all of the questions that fallen logic seems to bring up and throw your way any time you talk about Jesus Christ. That's what happens, right? We, we, we go out, we tell people about Jesus Christ, we tell people about what Jesus did to our lives, we, we share our testimony with somebody, we, we talk about it, and they bring up all these foolish questions that seem like we can't give an answer, and sometimes we, we can't give an answer because they're so stupid. And we go away thinking, man, I... I So discouraged. Why? Why? It doesn't matter what they bring up. That doesn't change Jesus. True worshipers just want others to come to know their Savior. And they're glad to tell others. doesn't matter what happens. You see, some of the multitude in verses 12 and 13, those that came out, they, they, they were just enamored with Jesus They were enamored with what he could do. They were enamored. They wanted to see the sideshow. They certainly weren't there to bear witness about him. They wanted him to do something for them. The witness of these people was effective. 
It was effective. Verse 18 certainly tells us it was effective. They were so effective, in fact, that because of their witnessing, the Pharisees say once again in a sarcastic fashion, you see, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the whole world is going out after him. I mean, could you imagine standing there in the temple grounds looking out to the east where the Kidron Valley is and just throngs of people heading out trying to cover the dusty path with palm branches. Pharisees are there saying, we're not doing anything right. Thinking about this, all that the world would say because of us, look, the whole world's going after Jesus. Wouldn't that be an awesome testimony? Fellowship Bible Church, look, look what they're doing. The whole world seems to be changing because they're in that little place. All they want to talk about is Jesus. They just keep bearing witness about Jesus. You know, there's trouble all abound in their life. There's difficulties everywhere. But all they want to tell you about is Jesus. I was up in the hospital this last week with Joe as he was waiting to find out what's going on. And he's I was kind of chuckling at one moment because telling him what I said to the church about Joe. I'm not sure he want, we wanted him healed. Maybe he could just tell the whole hospital about Jesus. And Joe would do that. And, of course, he'd probably be embarrassed that I'm even saying this. But one of his caseworkers came in the hospital. Maybe he's told you the story. One of the caseworkers came into his room, and I'm sitting there, and she's asking him questions about whether he wants a doctor and all these other kinds of things. And Joe says, no, nah, I don't need any of that. I, I don't need that. He said, but I'll talk to you about Jesus. This poor gal, she said, you know, I, I don't want to talk about religion or politics. I don't do that. Joe said, I don't want to talk about that either. I just want to talk about Jesus. She she could not get out of that room fast enough. That's the heart of a true Christian, isn't it? That's the heart of a worshiper. I just want to tell you about Jesus. All that the world would say of us, look, look, we can't do anything. They're telling everybody about him. It's only going to happen when we're unpolluted by the world. When the world's shallow thinking is so far from our minds because we're saturated with the thinking of truth. We may truly know the king, but do we bow the knee in worship to Him through selfless service? Do we bow the knee to Him through selfless fellowship? Do we bow the knee to a king, our king, through selfless sacrifice like Martha, Lazarus, Mary? Do we bow the knee to our king through selfless witnessing? Selfless evangelism. That's what true worshipers do. That's what we ought to be doing. I just want to tell you about Jesus. Well, we'll get more next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time here tonight.
Thank you for showing us the heart of true worship. Thank you for being our king. Thank you for fulfilling prophecy, for doing exactly what you said you would do, that we might have full trust in you, knowing that what you said, even in times past, even in ancient manuscripts as it was written and given to us, has been fulfilled and will continue to be fulfilled, just as you have said. Your word is true, even if the world hates it. You are faithful to your people. We just want to worship you, Lord. We know we fail at that so often. Flesh gets in the way. We allow it to get in the way. We do things we ought not do. We don't want to be those who just attach ourselves to you, but really don't worship you at all, hoping that you would fix our life when in fact you didn't come to do that. You came to change our life change our response to life that we might glorify you through it all be like you help us do that lord with wisdom where we lack wisdom may we run to you with full faith never doubting lord challenge us in these things cause us to walk in obedience to you give us the strength to endure help us to revel in that endurance because we know that it causes us to be mature Lord, most of all, cultivate in our life humility. A willingness to simply humble ourselves under your hand that we would, in fact, know fully what it means to be a worshiper of you. Thank you for these people, Lord. Bless them as they honor your name because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.